0: Welcome to Real Talk, everyone. We have a full house today. Three hosts, four guests. We're outnumbered. Um, <laughs> to take on one of the, if, you know, honestly, I don't know, Danielle Sayida if you feel this way, but it seems like things are relentless. And i f- you know, 20 years from now, I imagine we'll look back at this time and really see it as um, a turning point towards what? Maybe we don't necessarily know, but a really like tumultuous moment in U.S. history. It does. It it really feels like a kind of breathless, relentless time to be here. Yep. So today we're talking specifically about affirmative action, um, which, of course, uh, we're talking about the context of higher ed. But things don't stay in the context of higher ed as we know. Danielle, I wonder if you want to get us started in terms of talking about affirmative action, one of these major moments in U.S. history that has just happened with the Um, Supreme Court ruling.
1: Yeah, so obviously we know that affirmative action has been overturned, um, and it's always been a controversial um, thing. And now with all the issues of diversity, um, that includes removing it from colleges. And... This basically has caused a lot of confusion, a lot of, as you said, tumultuous um, situations. Now people are being left out of college, you know, um, and then there's also what brings up the topic of what exactly constitutes as affirmative action. Um, So we also see the trying to bring down legacy, which is... Affirmative action for uh, a certain type of person. Um, so, yeah, we basically are seeing a lot of polarizing in the, not just the country, but in the college setting as
2: well. Um, so, of course, me, I'm going to look at what is affirmative action? Right, so you scour the internet, you try and find the best definition, and I went by the legal definition. So according to Cornell's Law School and their Legal Information Institute, they define affirmative action as a set of procedures designed to eliminate unlawful discrimination among applicants, remedy the results of such prior discrimination, and prevent such discrimination in the future. So with that being the basis of today... Let's meet who we're chatting with and about what, Yeah, So
0: we're going to get way more granular on this. I mean, affirmative action has been the law of the land in our and just the social practice in all of our lifetimes. Like that has been sort of the only way I've known the the world to be. And in order to understand the present, of course, we have to look at the past. So um, the first guest joining us today is Tess Marchant Shapiro, and she is a professor of political science here at Southern Connecticut State University. And she uh, specifically is going to talk with us about the political history of affirmative action, how it connects to some of our American myths, the American dream, the opportunity, um, the promise that this country um, holds, and then the, the way that we think about merit and who is deserving. Um, so, so Tess, welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Oh, well, thank you. It's good to be here. What can you tell us about the history of affirmative action and its connection to our American ideals?
3: Well, we use affirmative action right now as a term that's a thing, and it has this whole construct connected to it. But originally it was used, and the words just were what the words were. So the the first legal use of it actually was in an executive order from President Kennedy. And he said federal contractors must take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and employers are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. And so in that more common sense use, it's like we need to to do something. Affirmative action was just we need to move forward to make sure that we don't have racist practices. And so that's that use of taking affirmative action got used several times historically after that um, in the executive orders, but also in in legislation. Um, but Lyndon Johnson gave us a, a better feel for the purpose of it. Again, in that moving forward context, he talked in after, the year after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed they were in the process of working on the Voting Rights Act of 65 and he gave um, a graduation speech at Howard University and he said you do not take a person who for years have has been hobbled by chains and liberate him bring him up to the starting line of a race and then say you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you've been completely fair Thus, it is not enough to just open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. And that's where we get that connection between the American dream. Mm. The purpose of affirmative action was to make sure that everyone actually had equal opportunity, Um, saying, oh, you can all apply to Yale, and and you'll all be judged on your merit it doesn't mean much if you weren't allowed to go to decent schools mm, right
0: absolutely. and
3: so that you've got to bring them up to the starting place so that when they apply for college they're at an equal position if you want to be able to say that actually the decision to admit them is based on merit um The trick with that merit is that as people started to think of affirmative action as a thing in and of itself, they transferred their notion of what it was of, oh, we need to give an advantage Mm. to these people. And, And that then led to the notion that got discussed in Baki, which I assume Andy will talk about later, that people, white people, started thinking about affirmative action as reverse discrimination, we may have discriminated against you in the past but by by giving you the edge in this decision you're discriminating against me and so that that notion of merit became problematic because we lost the more intuitive notion of we need to make the level the the playing field level
2: it sounds like you're saying equitable when we say making the playing field level it immediately made me think of equity so when I think of affirmative exactly. action, yeah, mm-hmm. I think of how it was thought to make things equal. But as you stated, bringing everyone to the same level means we have to also make it equitable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mildly where the mark was missed and why people thought, oh, this is reverse racism, right? Like, no, this is, we want to make it equal and equitable.
0: Mm. And very interesting to hear that history, too, that it's that, you know, something that was a more nebulous, we need to do something, became a sp- sort of codified as a very specific sort of set of practices and then and then taken up as you say like in, in public consciousness. Uh, <laughs> uh, VP of diversity equity and inclusion Diana Riza and specifically Dan I'm hoping that you can speak about why higher education specifically is necessary when it comes to equal opportunity and it's not just like equal opportunity for housing jobs but why higher education?
4: Thank you, Casey and every guest and everyone else. I, 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 I do want to go back to the, this notion, and I appreciate Saida you mentioning this difference between equity and equality. And you know I go back to this example uh, in the 1940s where the GI bill uh, was a wonderful policy uh, that have made available made higher ed, PROVIDED FINANCIAL SUPPORT FOR ALL VETERANS THAT FOUGHT in, um, in, the, IN WORLD WAR II. AND WE KNOW THAT DURING THAT TIME, uh, SOLDIERS CAME FROM ALL DIFFERENT BACKGROUNDS, RACIAL BACKGROUNDS, ETHNICITIES. AND WHEN THAT BILL BECAME AVAILABLE TO ALL VETERANS um, TO GO TO SCHOOL, TO, to GO INTO COLLEGE, and fulfill their dreams. Um, we know historically that that was not necessarily available to Black Americans, and that actually they were not given that that same opportunity. So, in and not in not providing, if a GI Bill that is a bill, a policy that is supposed to be available for all. For all soldiers or veterans to go to college, and yet are not Black Americans are not given that same opportunity, then how how are we thinking about equality when for for people to to provide to provide access for minoritized populations in this case to go to college when they're not even able to apply for scholarship or this 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 money? to attend. So you know, as we think about higher education and opportunities for my, you know, minoritized um, students to attend, we have to look also at policies that are, are prevented students um, from coming in. And then we see a rise in the 60s back to what Tess was just saying with um, opportunity due to the Civil Rights Act. And you see this growth, this immediate growth of particularly black and brown, but uh, an influx of admissions offices suddenly opening the gates for black students to, to, to attend due to the Civil Rights Act. And yet you have this now today in 2036. I was just reading an article about over 50% in 2036 over 50% of our students high school graduates will come from a diverse background so you know we can make the if if you just started to look at the economic value of who are we going to enrolling the population the demographic has changed dramatically but back to the question of w- why higher ed and and how do we why access and equal opportunity equitable opportunities for students are more important than ever that if we are not able now they're coming but if we're not able to retain them and graduate them we will have a a severe lack of students being able to be competitive in the market And being able to be um, competitive in, in how they see themselves as political organizers or leaders in government if we're not able to graduate them. So we can bring them in, but how does this, how does affirmative action block without affirmative action opportunities or educational equitable opportunities? How are we closing that citizenry from having? Them participate as in 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 viable ways in all aspects of leaders in our society, so it's it's vital more than ever to um, we've opened the gates they're coming but how are we how, what are we doing to really um, engage them um, so that they are graduating and they are reaping all the benefits that other citizens um, are engaging and having opportunities to, 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 to pursue. I love that.
2: You know, I kind of got to wonder, what is the legal precedent of this? And I feel like we might have somebody here who can speak to that.
0: <laughs> yes, we, we lay people are sitting here talking about, um, I mean, so the, the root and the, the inspiration for this conversation is the recent Supreme Court ruling. So it's only appropriate to have a legal expert um, weigh in on that. And, and really, I mean, this is one of the longer judicial opinions we've seen. Um, so there's a lot going on. In to offer that, that context and to give us a summary of the, the legal opinion itself, we've got Andy Marchant Shapiro here, um, who is a licensed attorney, uh, also an adjunct professor of political science here at Southern Connecticut State University, I understand, currently teaching a class on affirmative action.
5: That's correct. I've got a seminar going on right now.
0: So we want to come, we want to, let's put a pin in that. We'll circle back to that piece later. But um, Andy, what can you tell us about the legal opinions themselves?
5: Okay. Um, The first thing you have to understand is that the constitution is, as of the adoption of the 14th amendment, really is created to be colorblind in the sense that it's focused on equality and not on equity. And that's an important thing to note. So from a constitutional perspective, the issue with affirmative action is the use of race as a category, even at the margins, because racial categories, the use of racial categories is in fact forbidden by uh, not only the 14th amendment, but by title six of the civil rights act of 1964. So in order to sort of compromise on that, And to focus on equity beyond equality, um, courts have progressively required a very strong justification. They've used, uh, the Supreme Court has used strict scrutiny to evaluate these things. So there's a series of cases we have to understand um, that led up to the current situation. The first of these is, of course, Bakke, which everybody knows about. 1978, this was the first case on affirmative action to come to be decided by the Supreme Court. And Bakke found a compelling governmental interest for the use of race in the benefits of diversity, that is, the benefits to students of having a diverse environment. And, and to accomplish that, Bakke permitted race to be used as a sort of plus factor, a tipping factor in admissions decisions, but uh, outlawed the use of any kind of quota system, outlawed the use of any set-aside programs that were tied to race, because that would essentially be similar to a quota system, and outlawed race as a up-down yes-no decisional factor. So it limited the use of race in affirmative action programs, but uh, did not outlaw it. 25 years later, in the Grutter case in 2003, uh, Grutter restated and upheld the compelling governmental interest that was found in Baki but said that you cannot use racial stereotyping in admissions. You cannot use race as a negative factor in admissions. And it required, at least uh, Justice Roberts, who wrote the opinion in this most recent case, says that Groter required the use of race uh, in admissions to have a chronological endpoint. There had to be some time at which we were no longer going to use race. Finally, uh, 13 years after that, you get the Fisher case, which again continued uh, race to be continued to permit race to be used, but added that programs that used race had to have some kind of measurable result rather than an aspirational goal. And so within these uh, increasing constraints, the Supreme Court permitted race-based admissions programs to operate even though they clearly violated title 6 VI and the equal protection clause of the 14th amendment.
0: Okay, so so let me let me you're giving us a lot and I want to just make sure that, that we're catching some of these key things. So that uh, the Bakke decision um, part of the rationale is that this is good for all students. That diversity is good for all students and thus that's why we should Correct. approach affirmative action. Okay. And then in Grutter you can't use race as a negative, but all of this is very, it's very narrow. Um, if I'm understanding this right,
5: that's correct. Because the, because the 14th, because the constitution is supposed to be colorblind, uh, it becomes increasingly difficult or rather the court makes it increasingly difficult to vary from that.
0: I wonder, and this might be too off topic, but, um, the it, the outlawing of quota systems does that have anything to do with um, the ending of immigration quota systems in in 1965?
5: I think quotas were just seen as um, a bad thing at the time of the Bakke decision. You really, you what you're dealing with is a very split decision. Four members of the court felt that the use of race was entirely appropriate. Felt that the use of race should be done away with entirely and so justice powell wrote a very narrow opinion Hmm. uh, Which which focused on the the benefit of diversity as you've said for all students and so uh, That became The thing that justified the use of any kind of diversity and he felt That if you just had this sort of positive tip for some students that would not deny anyone who should otherwise be admitted to be admitted. that it would essentially have no negative value. It would only be a positive value. Hmm.
0: And then so with this latest opinion, what's the what's the shift there?
5: Okay. Um, they applied the the criteria or Justice Roberts, I should say, applied in his opinion, all of these criteria. Uh, and argued in the first place, he argued that race was being used as a negative because admissions are zero sum. If you've got 400 slots for students and 500 apply, it's automatically negative to say that anyone can't get in. And so he felt race was being used as a negative in that instance. He also said that if you look at Harvard's program, if you look at UNC's program, there's no end point as set forth in Grutter, And then he applied Fisher to say, look, uh, these are all very nice goals. Um, having future leaders in the public and private sectors who are aware of diversity, preparing graduates to adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society, that's all really nice. That's all really admirable. But there's no way to evaluate whether diversity gives us a better outcome in that respect. And because of this, because he felt that these, basically the rulings of the previous three cases of Bakke, of Grutter and of Fisher had not been uh, met by Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs, he said, look. Harvard's he said specifically that Harvard's and UNC's admissions programs were invalid they were unconstitutional and so you could not use you could not they could not continue to use those programs and you could not apply the same sorts of measures that Harvard and UNC had used in the past rather he turned to individual experiences so he said, oh. well you can't just talk about race in your application essay, but you could talk about the way race has influenced you as an individual in your admissions essay. That sort of thing.
0: The fourth guest we're going to fold into the next can maybe speak more specifically to this, but the the essay is one place where uh, students, I think, already navigate complicated questions of identity and disclosure. Um, anyway, so before before we introduce. Um, our fourth guest. Uh, I do wonder, Andy, if you could speak to the dissenting justices. So this was a 6-3 ruling. Um, and I understand that uh, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor has been um, lately delivering at least some comments on dissenting opinions from the bench. Um, but I wonder if, you know, so we have this this argument you just laid out that, that Roberts um, mm-hmm. wrote. And then I wonder, what was the argument from the three dissenting justices? Okay.
5: Well, there's one of the reasons this is a very long opinion is that the actual opinion of the court is fairly short; it's only about twenty pages. But the uh, the concurrences and the dissents mm. are uh, quite lengthy. I think the the gist of what's coming from the dissenting justices is a question of context, and by that I mean the the uh, majority justify their view as textualists. They say, we look at the text, and this is what it means. Uh, And this is most clear in Justice Gorsuch's concurrence. Mm. that He says, you know, okay, well, what does discrimination mean? And one of the things that's come up uh, in my seminar, and has also come up, I think, in the views of the dissenting justices, is no, uh, that's not what discrimination meant at the time. If you look at Title VI, which is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, when you use the term discrimination in 1964, who are you talking about being discriminated against? If you look at the writings of authors around the 14th Amendment, who are they talking about who have to be made equal? What is the notion? You know, are they they simply saying everybody should be the same, or are they talking about a specific historical event that may have occurred just a few years prior to the passage of the 14th amendment that convulsed this country right um and con- so they're arguing that context uh tells us that we do need to permit some kind of variation from the 14th amendment is written that we need to th- focus in the direction of equity as opposed to bare equality as tessa said bringing these people to the starting gate Uh, bringing everybody to the starting gate when some of these people have been wearing chains for decades, it's not equitable.
0: Right. Right. And so specifically not a colorblind Right. Yeah. The the,
5: the Constitution is, in fact, colorblind, but we may not be able to operate as colorblind just yet. Right. Maybe not for a long time yet.
2: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I feel like your points beg why race is so heavily criticized and scrutinized, especially when it comes to just a general standard across the board, right? Like if discussing race in an admissions essay is an advantage of some sort, then why do we look at race so critically, right? I don't think that it is an advantage when you discuss race in a personal essay or a college essay for that matter. I feel like it puts you under the magnifying glass and you're going to be evaluated mm. so much harder depending on the race that you're identifying with mm-hmm. and what you're saying about it.
0: Right, and are you perpetuating right acceptable forms of
2: tokenism?
1: Yeah. But what I find funny about that is one of the things that my mom said to me because, you know, she had only been in college for maybe like a semester, so we really didn't know what we were doing was that she wanted to put a sob story in because mm-hmm. she had heard that that's what helps people of color get into college you know it's like you really got to you really got to lay it all out there put all the mm-hmm. put all the trauma and all the juices and i was finding out things about her that i didn't know in my college <laughs> essay you know so it it's funny how how that works especially for a construct that was created by you know the very people that don't want you to benefit off of it
0: but then when we talk about race really broadly, there are also Asian Americans who are trying to minimize their race in yes. in their materials. Is, does this make me seem too Asian? Is this going to put me at a disadvantage?
2: Yeah,
5: And that's something that Justice Kavanaugh actually raised in no. his concurrence. <laughs>
2: Don't
5: do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, that, that, that's a fair point. I mean, no, it the is question. true, though. It is, it is true. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: It's important to talk about race explicitly, but not in, in a uh,
0: flat and binary
2: way. Right. Yeah. Not solely yeah. as that.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: So you have to talk about it in terms of your individual experience. Right. That's what so they want what us does, to do now.
0: But meanwhile, affirmative action in in its various forms has been one of not a whole lot of large scale levers for trying to, you know, reach this this goal, not not one that everybody has, but a goal of equity. Um, in society, it's been a, a lever, an imperfect one. Um, and to get even more specific in this conversation, um, we're going to introduce our fourth guest, who is a vice president of enrollment management here at Southern Connecticut State University, Julie Edstrom. And so, Julie, you are working. I mean, you are the one who is. Well, actually, why don't you tell us what you do? Because I was in planning this episode. I thought I have learned so much just in the context of doing this this podcast in my handful of years as a faculty member so far, but certainly as a student, I didn't, admissions was like, did you get in or not? And then you move on and and you're busy in school. So I don't know that a lot of students listening or even necessarily faculty really understand like how, how does the university function in this way? How is the sausage made? So can you tell us a little bit about what your job is first?
6: Sure. So Enrollment management can be, you know, the role can be a little bit different depending on the institution and how it's organized. But um, here at Southern, for example, um, the the areas that are part of the enrollment management division include the registrar's office, financial aid, um, undergraduate admissions, and we have two separate undergrad admissions teams here. At Southern, we have a, a team focused on first year students and a team for, focused on transfer students. And then I, I certainly have a role, even though not all of this directly reports um, up through the Division of Enrollment Management, in keeping track of student success, retention, persistence, graduation rates, and so I collaborate with, you know, folks in Academic Affairs and Student Affairs and um, across the university to uh, to meet our enrollment goals and and especially at Southern, to the extent that our mission um, is to provide access and opportunity to, you know, make sure that the processes we put in place, the policies we have are are, are living up to that. So, you know, I, I, I coordinate with my team about, you know, where are we recruiting and spending time? You know, what does the admission process look like? How are we helping students through that process? You know, what kind of financial aid are we able to provide and how can we address questions about affordability so that people can actually be here and make this work? Um, so all of those kind of um, go into uh, overall enrollment management. Certainly what what people most people think about marketing, I should mention too, I, I have um, worked at places where marketing Hmm. Is part of the enrollment division. It's a separate team here, but we certainly work closely with them. Um, and so, who, what are what's our messaging? Who are we um, hoping to attract, and so on in the community? Um, people think very specifically about the application process and reviewing and making decisions about who gets admitted and who doesn't get admitted. But um, there's there's more to it than that.
2: That's super interesting. I always wonder about admissions and the admission process and how it goes, because who is in fact reading the personal statements? Who's looking at the demographic, the makeup? Is it a first gen? Is it not? Um, I think so much of the admissions process goes back to Tess's original point of trying to establish this American dream and just achieve and move forward. But when we think about the legality of it and how affirmative action plays in, is achieving an American dream even something that's feasible or possible considering these multivariate factors of race, equity? um, Can you even achieve it, right, Mm -hmm. based on your foundational education? Can you compete at a college level regardless of whether it's an Ivy, an HBCU, or prestigious any other university? Can we, in fact, create systems where everyone can achieve their realm or lane of the American dream.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, Tess, you could probably speak to that, that point. Um, and there, I mean, there is good data. I don't have it in front of me. Um, and you're certainly a, a data-driven scholar. But there's data about higher education. You can't ignore the impacts that it has on social mobility.
3: Oh, absolutely. Uh, getting a college degree boosts, your lifetime income i think the latest report was like a million dollars total over a lifetime that that it makes a huge difference to be able to get a, just get a college degree and and for that it doesn't really matter where you go um i guess the 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 trick is again back to that notion of merit mm. i think as a society we've bought into the notion that the test scores and the gpa and so forth actually do measure um, my worth as a person. Mm. I can't tell you how many students I've I've taught here at Southern who somehow think that those students at Yale deserve more. They're smarter or oh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Daily, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's just crazy. We yeah. have really bright students who have not had the kinds of advantages throughout their lifetime that give the Yale students all of those advantages. I mean, going to to schools um our a lot of our students never had a, a science lab in the school that they attended right. or and i you know i i compare my kids the the gifted and talented program was focused their entire lives on teaching them how to do well on sat and and our students their schools don't spend all that time. And 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 so my kids may get a higher score on the SAT, but it has nothing to do with their merit. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the fact of that their school's focused on that, and so they get higher scores. And so I think the distinction isn't necessarily between um, what a college degree will get you or not. The distinction is in your thought of of what you're worth, which goes back to Brown versus the Board of Education, that separate is not equal. Um, But it also then goes on to who gets into the Ivy Leagues and and was Baki right? Oh, I've been discriminated against because the student got in instead of me without any attention being paid to all of the advantages that he had his entire lifetime that that other student did not have. Mm. Uh, and so if you start thinking about the potential to perform well as a professional, as the, what we're searching for in in merit rather than a test score, it sort of blows all of this discussion of affirmative action out of the water.
1: And so talking about that and in, ter- in terms of merit and the differences between what people are afforded prior to even getting into college, what exactly are your thoughts on the um, decision to now look at legacy and look at how that affects how people are getting into college and, is that strictly based on, okay, these people have had opportunity, these people have followed in the footsteps of their parents or, you know, whatever family member. Or big donors. Yeah. And, you know, does that actually, is that similar to conducting things based on, you know, race or something like that and being discriminatory towards others? Because maybe these people don't have the quote-unquote merit to get into these places. I mean, what do we Mm -hmm. know about, what was it, Bush two? And he was, you know, getting into into Yale and, you know, apparently not really making grade, but he was afforded that opportunity not based on the fact that he was a very skilled learner, but because of who he knew, you know, and what does that do for quote-unquote affirmative action and who we let into college systems um, equal and parallel to, you know, being afforded an opportunity based on race.
5: One of the uh, good things to come out of students for fair admissions is that a lot of schools have looked at that and they've said, okay, uh, well, we can't really, you know, we can't use legacy anymore, not because it's forbidden by the opinion, but because it's another factor that works against equity.
0: Mm. Well, that's an upshot.
2: I feel like it's still done clandestinely. I mean, I think everything's I mean, done clandestinely. New. This <laughs> is all new,
0: too. But there's, you know, um, Julie, I wonder if you could speak to, like, how is this looking and what changes might have to happen? I, I would assume that, you know, now there's more scrutiny and and more risk for universities, that there could be audits, there can be lawsuits um, in terms of policies and practices. So... I mean, we had elite schools that were a part of this opinion. We are at a regional four-year comprehensive university. Um, what does that look like? What does race look like in our admissions process? Is that going to change? And and then the many other schools around the country that are like ours that are not these not not UNC, not Harvard.
6: Yeah, you know, it, it's this is fascinating to me. The like public fascination with elite colleges, the most highly selective elite schools in the U.S. because it's such a tiny proportion of all the, you know, higher ed opportunities across the country, um, and yet uh, it's kind of all you hear about in the popular media. <laughs> yeah, it's
0: sort sure of like is. Of yes.
6: Sort of like, you know, the race to, to get admitted, all the inc- incredible stress that it places on high school students, you know, and the pressure. They feel to you know get into the most uh, well-known name they possibly can, um, and certainly there are some tangible benefits to that, um, probably that people could could claim. But in the meantime, you know, there's at a school like Southern, a regional public, and there are so so many schools like us you know, we have plenty of space. Admissions is absolutely not a zero-sum game here. We are looking to admit every qualified person we can find. We uh, we are looking to attract, um, you know, anyone who's uh, interested and able to, you know, take advantage of the opportunity. The biggest concerns we deal with is, you know, how can we partner with K-12 uh, systems to make sure that students are prepared and able to be successful, the kinds of things that that Tess was addressing in terms of um what does it take to, to succeed at the college level? How do colleges need to adapt and respond to kind of meet students where they are? And um and so, uh, yeah, specifically in the the kind of outcome of this latest Supreme Court decision is, you know, we Southern has never factored in. Um, race or ethnicity in the admission decision. We have never said, you know, we're going to look at your your racial status and, you know, that's going to tip one way or another in terms of whether you get admitted. We are, just to be sure that we're you know, satisfying the legal requirement, Uh, our reviewers who are our admission staff, our admission counselors are reading the file and looking at the student's high school preparation and so on and reading the essay and deciding whether a student gets admitted or not. We admit the vast majority of students who apply. Um, And if we don't admit someone, it's because we truly believe they're not ready for for Southern. so but we're going to be hiding the race and ethnicity from the review. There's when you when our um, uh, admission counselors kind of log in and, and are reading files, the race and ethnicity of the candidate is not going to be visible to them. So we're just making sure that's the case across you know all of our admissions processes, including at the graduate level. Um, and I, I think that. Uh, the legacy piece of it is interesting too, because we also have not advantaged, you know, legacy students here at Southern. A lot of schools do, but I agree that that's, that's another area where, you know, it's, it's part of our mission that we're going to be looking at this from an equity perspective. And so a lot of our practices aren't really going to change in light of this decision, but we do need to be mindful of what are the implications down the road in other
0: arenas. Right. Like, and we are, you know, we're a more diverse institution than many of these elite schools. Absolutely. And it's so different. You're right. Like we talk about this, like it's very different for a school that's turning away 90% versus accepting 90%. It's like, oh, it's a completely different equation. and And it makes me think we're really looking at, in terms of real educational equity across the board, a very narrow kind of sliver of these elite schools.
2: I have to ask. Do it. Um, <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the prior administration here at Southern, there were questions about um, diversifying the population. And as Southern is a predominantly BIPOC population here, there were discussions about recruitment from certain areas of New Haven. So that begs the question of Are candidates considered based on locality? Maybe not race explicitly, but are we recruiting or accepting from certain areas or regions within New Haven or Connecticut as a whole that does help diversify, but may or may not be equitable?
6: From my perspective, no, we are not making admission decisions based on that. Um, But it's probably, it's something that we should be evaluating every year uh, you know, where are we spending time and resources to recruit?
2: Yeah,
6: And so, you know, I, I mean, I think we, our goal would be that we are being as equitable as we can be in that effort. And so, you know, our team visits every single high school, every single public high school in Connecticut. Um, the schools that I have historically been our top feeders, we visit multiple times throughout the course of an admission cycle. And then we partner very intentionally um, with uh with New Haven public schools, with Hamden, you know, all of our kind of surrounding area, we're very much about, um, you know, the the region, the geographical kind of region that we serve and our role kind of in state higher ed overall. So um, I think any, any questions and criticism about that is absolutely fair game. You know, we, we should be able to justify, you know, yes, we are attending to, you know, all of the populations, you know, New Haven is a fairly segregated city. Connecticut is a fairly yep. segregated um state. So are are we attending to that in how we're doing our outreach? I think we're we're working hard at that. Are we are we a hundred percent where we need to be? Probably not.
0: Yeah. And then, you know, college again, is that the the I always thought this, you know, when I first started teaching college in Wisconsin you can see how unequal people's K-12 educations have been. Yes. And it's not about intelligence. It's about training, opportunity, mm-hmm. privilege. And that is just so clear once you get to the college level. Um, and there are, I mean, I just think that we're a whole ecosystem. Um, and there's so much in terms of educational equity that has to happen K-12 in order to achieve true equity when, when we're coming to the college level.
5: This might be a little bit off topic, but perhaps at some point we ought to look at how public schools are funded so that we uh, have a a fair, perhaps things could be funded on a statewide basis rather than on a local basis. Right.
0: So the rich, you know, high property value neighborhoods have the well-funded schools and then the poor neighborhoods have the poorly funded schools. Absolutely.
1: So with all of these things that we've been talking about is there a way that applicants can increase their chances um, of getting into college um, that aren't based on maybe the sob story or very specific racial imp- implications, I guess? Um, you know, I,
6: it's hard for me to speak to the admission standards or, you know, kind of what are the kinds of things that advantage students at, at more selective schools Um, But from just from my reading and sort of, you know, these conversations going on in the network of enrollment management across higher ed, um, I think that uh, it's not so much about the sob story as it is about the um, like describing resilience or You know, I think another thing that doesn't get enough attention is uh, commitment to a goal. There's a lot of good research about um, how important it is for students to demonstrate a a commitment to a goal of, like, getting a college degree, for example, and what are some concrete things they've done um, toward that. I think those are the kinds of stories that really are more impactful in terms of demonstrating the student's readiness um, and ability to be successful I guess the other thing I will just mention, too, is, you know, test optional, I think, is a really important piece of this. Um, COVID sort of accelerated uh, a trend that was happening in, you know, more skepticism about standardized testing. I'm a huge skeptic of standardized testing, um, particularly with college admission. And, you know, anyone who wants to read more about this, a great source is an organization that can be found at Mm fairtest.org. Um, They have a lot of great data about the history of standardized testing and use in admissions. Um, COVID, because students couldn't meet face-to-face at testing sites and get the test accomplished, uh, caused a lot of schools to set that aside as an admission requirement. And then most of us have decided not to bring it back, which is a good thing because um, it gets at kind of all the inequity kinds of things we've been talking about. Um, but there, the, the other side of that that I think is less well-known is there's also, I think, good evidence that um, high school grades are um, predictive of college success and it doesn't matter what kind of school you go to. It doesn't matter if you're at a, a wealthy, you know, school with a high percentage of students going on to college or you're at an urban, you know, less resourced school without ma- as many programs. If you have a higher GPA at that less resourced school, you're more likely to do better um, than your counterparts. Uh, it's so, so great high school grades are predictive, and they are important in terms of college readiness.
1: I definitely can understand what you're saying about the test scores, because I definitely took my SAT three times and then took the ACT because they said it's better for people of color. Huh. Um, and all four of those things tripped me up, um, especially the one on my birthday, <laughs> not that, not that, that was that a great remember. time. Not oh, 100%. It was a Saturday, lovely Saturday.
2: So I will say, I do have to say that here at Southern, we do a really good job of engaging with the community. And that is something that I think most universities could benefit from because a lot of times what I have found in my experience is when you visit universities, they're in the middle of neighborhoods where mm-hmm. those Individuals who live there could never attend. They wouldn't have a possibility of attending. With that being said, though, would any of you like to weigh in? How do we think this decision on affirmative action is likely to affect the other aspects of our society and how we view equity, equality, and um, access?
0: yeah, just just a little a light closing question.
2: <laughs> I <laughs> would do
3: that. It's an important <laughs> one though. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you started out talking about the decision as eliminating affirmative action, but actually the decision was very narrow and explicit that is about uh, affirmative action in higher education. But the reality is that the logic of the decision applies in any kind of affirmative action. So it really, in the long term, is not going to be narrowly, it'll have impact on employment and so forth. Right. Uh, but in addition, actually, Andy can talk to this, there there already have been changes in various programs uh, realizing that they need to, to not have race as a category that they look
5: at. Absolutely. Um, Students for Fair Admissions also sued uh, a couple of law firms that had uh, in- essentially internship programs whereby they would be hiring on people of color uh, or people in other underrepresented categories and um, the two of two very prominent law firms, uh, one in New York, one in California have now uh, eliminated those requirements for applicants to the programs so that, in, they are now uh, theoretically open to all and colorblind. Hmm. That's in addition to what many many schools have done when sued before getting a decision. So Yale, for example, has essentially revolutionarily changed its affirmative actions program uh, because it was the target of a suit. And you will now see, although the court very carefully said, well, this, our decision here doesn't apply to military academies because there are special circumstances, there are national security concerns and so forth. Um, the same groups have now sued uh, various U.S. military academies to try and achieve the same end. And we are looking, I think, at the end of affirmative action in pretty much all aspects of American life, not just education.
1: Is that also, um, I did see, I don't know if that's the same... Uh I don't remember the name that you call it the same group that was going after this um black women that were giving i think loans or something
5: there was a contest that uh black women's group held let me see if i can find my note on that um yeah the fearless Drivers grant contest which awarded twenty thousand dollars to black women running businesses And the claim was that the American Alliance for Equal Rights was the the group in that case. The claim was that this violated the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which prohibited racial discrimination in contracting. Uh, That case, my understanding is, was recently dismissed as meritless by a trial court. That does not mean that will not be appealed. And I expect Mm -hmm. if Mm -hmm. that case is appealed, we would probably see the same sort of outcome that we saw in Students for Fair Admissions Mm -hmm. versus Harvard.
1: So I wonder what would that mean for, I guess, everything. I mean, that is pretty much like, you know, that that wouldn't necessarily be exclusionary, but would be based on just grouping and like how people. Or HBCUs. Yeah, or how people right. are. I mean, HBCUs are already accepting of Wait everyone. Wait a minute.
2: You know the HBCU person going to come in here. Hold on. Hold on. Because I know at my HBCU there were everybody, and our band had everybody because the young man on the tuba was amazing. And he was not a black demographic. (laughs) He was awesome, but he had soul. You know, we've always been accepting the veterinary school at Tuskegee university is comprised of everybody from all over the world. They go to HBCUs have not traditionally been discriminatory. We've had all kinds of people. I didn't tell y'all Xavier, you walk on that campus. It looks like anybody else's campus. So wait a minute. Don't loop us in here.
0: Well, I'm just wondering about the <laughs> impact of like of,
2: impact.
0: of specific, you know, or like speaking of this this um, group and scholarship, any sort of affinity-based work um, yeah. in community enclave kind of things that may no longer be on their face legal.
5: I have uh, walked through the Milford Mall, and I think it's the Black Business Alliance yeah. has an office mm-hmm. in the Milford Mall, and I look at that and go, "That's not going to be here very long."
1: Oh, Mm. wow.
5: I I, actually just saw those
1: people on Saturday.
5: I don't know of any specific cases, but I think they should be concerned that this is the kind of decision that's... I I think it's significant perhaps that Students for Fair Admissions didn't identify itself as an Asian group for fair admissions or anything like that Mm. because you'd run into the same sort of problem. colorblind name, yeah. Yeah, I I think we're going to be looking at... um, and increasing pushback against affinity groups of all sorts,
0: and diversity work generally. Yeah, yeah.
3: So, so one of the maybe bright shining stars here. <laughs> okay, okay. Um,
1: <laughs> help us, Tess. Help us. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: so, the way in which the court cases are written is focused on the zero sum thing, and it's all about exclu- exclusion, right? So I think there is uh, a skill to be developed in focusing on inclusion rather than exclusion and a way of framing our work, our diversity work, as inclusive that would get past a lot of these challenges. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, that's, I think, a perfect note for us to end on right there. Um, but thank you so much to our guests, um, Diana Ariza. Julie Edstrom, Andy Marchand Shapiro, Tess Marchand Shapiro, um, obviously to my lovely co hosts um, But this is, yeah, this is a really sort of monumental moment um, that we're only sort of seeing, well, it, do- it doesn't come in a vacuum, um, but we may see, we will likely see huge ripple effects in our society coming from here and we'll need to take major shifts um, in our work. So thank you uh, to our guests for joining us today. We should probably do this annually, make sure. Um, We stay on top. All right. Thank you all so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.